0: I am often struck by this, and it is a serious and deep thought that I am afraid that sometimes we cannot fathom the depth of the opposition to the gospel in our day. We come to church, we worship God, we think about the things of God, we love the things of God, we go to our homes, we teach our children, we read our Bibles. We're caught up in the things of God and in the things of His Word. But I don't think we often think of or realize the depth of the opposition to what we believe. And I mean particularly of a church like ours that holds to the, the exposition of the Word of God and upholds Christ as the glorious Son of God and, and God as the sovereign God, the sufficiency of His Word and all of these things that we hold so dear, that all the soulless, a church like ours, faces opposition today. Not only is there the looming threat of anti-Christian radical Islam and the terrorism that it brings against Christianity in general in our day. I mean, think about it. A little over ten years ago, they destroyed the World Trade Center. Islam did. Radical Muslims did. Destroyed the World Trade Center. Crashed into the Pentagon. Crashed another plane in Pennsylvania. And they are now more free in their religion than we are. They're more like a protected religion than Christianity is. And they would kill you if they could. Radical Islam would wipe out every Christian or every Jew if they could. That's how much they ate because of their radical understanding of the Quran. But not only is there anti-Christian Islamic terrorism... Not only is there the overwhelming hordes of unbelievers and pagans who just hate what we do, who would rather be out on the Gulf of Mexico or at Walmart or at the mall on a Sunday rather than spending the Lord's Day with the Lord's people and with the things of God. They hate us. They mock us. They laugh at us. Do you realize what a joke we are to so many so-called educated people today? You know, we're so smart. We've gone to the university and you people worship this God that doesn't exist from a Bible that was just written by men. They hate what we love. And not only then is there this hatred from radical Islam and the really the unbelieving pagans that are around. And not only is there anti Christian sentiment even from our government, which then spills over into our schools, as the government has decreed that you cannot Teach creationism in schools. You have to teach evolution, this pagan, ungodly, wicked evolution that denies God as creator. The government says you have to teach that. The government says you can murder babies in the wombs. The government says that you can now have same uh, gender marriages. The government says all of these things are coming down from the government, not even from the people. Nobody voted for this stuff, but the government is forcing it upon our nation. It is all anti-Christian, anti-God stuff coming from Washington, D.C. And it filters down, as I said, into the schools, teaching children that Christianity is a myth. And that we're just evolved in all of these things. So, there's all of that that we face. So, not only is there anti-Christian terrorism, not only is there anti-Christian pagans, not only is there anti-Christian government, not only is there a constant battle from the news and from entertainment. You know how much the news is biased against Christians? It is overwhelmingly biased against Christianity and the things that we love and the things that we believe, they hate. And they don't like it at all. But it's all their liberal bent. and It's their liberal bent in so many other ways that they just hate what we stand for. They would have to answer for their sins if there's really a God. So there can't be a God. Same thing in our entertainment. The movies, Hollywood, all of this. So many of them, as I said, are not in favor of what we believe or hold to. And it comes forth. And not only are there all these things, and not only are there all sorts of things that vie for the attention of our children, such as all these video games and all kinds of electronics. And on Wednesday nights, when I drive here to come to prayer meeting, I pass by this building on 52 right here, and you can't even get in the parking lot because it is so jam packed with kids going to karate lessons. All this stuff that they would, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with necessarily teaching sports or karate or anything, but imagine if we could get that many people to come here for a prayer meeting and kids to come for a prayer meeting. All of these things. Not only are there all of these things, but there is real apathy and real disbelief and even real hatred in our day that comes from many that call themselves Christians and even evangelical Christians for the truth of God's Word. So not only are we fighting the pagan world, not only are we fighting the unbelieving world, but even those who call themselves Christians would oftentimes hate The exposition of the Word of God, hate the teaching of a non-easy believism gospel, teaching that you should strive for holiness and godliness, teaching that God is sovereign and powerful and that the sacrifice of Christ was for His people, all of these things that we love and all of these things that the scriptures teach, churches go, you hate, that you hate the gospel because you don't give an invitation. You don't give an invitation. You're not evangelical enough. We get opposition from everywhere. And then the worst one is what the Apostle Paul described as our fighting against the evil one. Where he speaks about our struggle being against powers and principalities. And so the evil one would also work against us here, even in this little church. Well, with all of that, how on earth can we ever accomplish what God has called on us to do? How can anybody ever be saved? Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. As we continue on in our study this morning as our Lord Jesus addresses the church at Philadelphia. So, the study is dear Philadelphia. And what we see here in this text is something that ought to encourage us as it did for this church. Because the one that we serve is greater than any and all opposition. He is able to open doors for us. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. This is where we're going today in our study. Let's pray. Father, we do ask again for your help and the supernatural attendance of the Holy Spirit's power as we look into your word today. Bless this passage to our hearts. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. We began this study by looking at the Holy One addressing the city of brotherly love. And we saw from verse 7, the who the angel of the church was speaking to the church, likely the pastor. We talked a little bit about the identity of the church, and I'm going to remind you of some of what we saw regarding that today. We then considered the one addressing the church as He is the one seen in chapter 1 who holds the seven stars, which are the messengers of the church, and who walks among the lampstands, that is, Christ is in the midst of His church. And then here to Philadelphia, He says that He is the Holy One. That is, that He is the absolute, holy, divine Son of God. Then he says that he is the one who is true, that he is the embodiment of truth, that he is all truth who has come to address his people. And then last Lord's Day, we saw him to be the one who he describes as holding the key of David. And we saw from the Scriptures last Lord's Day that that involves the fact that He is the fulfillment of the promise to David in the Davidic Covenant to be the one who will sit on the throne for all eternity. It is His kingdom that we belong to. We are members of the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of light. And He is our King. The King of kings. And the Lord of lords. That is, He is King over every other Small k king. And he is Lord over every other small l Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is who we serve. And that is what he is in essence saying to the church here in Philadelphia. He is the great priest in that he is the Holy One. The great prophet is that he is all truth. And the great king in that he holds the key of David. This is the one who is addressing the church. And on the basis of this, on the basis of the fact that the one that we come to to worship today, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who is in our midst, is indeed the God who is God. He is able to open doors. For his church. He is able to open doors for His people. So this is where we will begin today to look at the one who opens doors. And this is speaking of Jesus. And I want to begin by seeing what He says to that church in verse 8 as He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no man can shut because you have A little power. I actually want to begin by looking at that phrase and understanding what he is saying to the church in Philadelphia when he says, because you have a little power. Now, there are likely several things that our Lord is speaking about when he addresses the church that way. And the reason I want to start here is because I want to see what they've been able to overcome. And I really want us to understand that it applies to us as well. Because the very first thing that comes to mind, and the commentators agree that our Lord Jesus was likely speaking about when He said that you have a little power with speaking of the fact or addressing the fact in this way may well mean that they were a small church. They were a small church. Remember I told you a little bit about Philadelphia. It was there in that valley. And Philadelphia was prone or subject to earthquakes. Philadelphia had several severe earthquakes noted in history. One of them happened in 17 A.D. Think about that. 17 A.D. Where was Jesus? Well, Jesus was about 17 years old. The actual demarcation of B.C. and A.D. may not be 100% accurate to the year that Jesus was born. But it's close. It's real close. So Jesus was, let's say, about 17 years old. Some of you remember when you were 17. Some of you are approaching when you'll be 17. But, you know, he was, a, he was a teenager, a young man. And he was likely working in the carpenter shop with his dad. Seventeen-year-old Jesus. Here's my point. Isn't it amazing that we know from history that there was an earthquake in 17 A.D. in Philadelphia? It destroyed the city. The people had to leave. Left it in ruins, in rubble. They had to get out. But we know that there was an earthquake in 17 A.D. We can believe that. We can trust that. And yet this is about 15 years before Jesus even began his ministry. And his teaching. And his healing. And his raising the dead. And his going to the cross. But we don't know if that could possibly have happened. We know there was an earthquake, but we don't know really. We can't believe. We can't trust anything that Jesus did because that was just written by man. That that Who knows if that's true or not? But we know there was an earthquake. You see what I'm getting at? The foolishness of men today to strive to deny the Gospel. Strive to deny the things of the Bible and yet believe Other tidbits that happened even prior to what Jesus did. As fact. Oh, that's fact. We know there was an earthquake. By the way, there was another earthquake in Philadelphia a few years later. They know that too. So here in 17 AD, Philadelphia was leveled by an earthquake or at least greatly destroyed or affected by an earthquake. The people had to flee. They had to get out. And they they came back in some measure. You know what it's like. Probably not quite as many came back. They probably said, let's get out of here. But some came back and they rebuilt. And then again, another earthquake happened and destroyed it again. And then less people came back. That is why most believe that the City of Philadelphia was never as big of a city as it might have been. And the church at Philadelphia was likely not a very large church. They had a little power because the population was just not there afterwards. And most people believe that that's very likely One of the things that Jesus is referring to when he speaks about that in this text. You know what it's like to be a small church? You have limited resources, limited capabilities. They were likely a small church. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But now let's go beyond the size of the church and recognize that this text is also likely addressing several other issues that Philadelphia probably had in their day that were common to all of the churches addressed here in the book of Revelation. They were all there about the same time. Our Lord is addressing all of these churches at about the same time, somewhere before 100 A.D., Probably likely even somewhere around 60 or 70 or 80 A.D. They're not sure exactly, but John lived a long time. He had a good long life. And he is writing this somewhere towards the end of the first century. So I'm just going to mention a couple of the things that plagued these churches. The first thing I'll say is that they were under the authority and under Roman Domination. Look, if you would, please, to chapter 2 and verse 9. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. They were under the oversight and unfortunately under the persecution of the Roman Empire. Chapter 2, look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, I can't go back And go through everything that we looked at as we addressed what was happening there in the church at Smyrna. But I do want to mention several things that were happening in Smyrna that were actually common to all these cities in this area. Because they were all under the dominion of Caesar. Certainly. What was being spoken of, at least in part, to this church and the tribulation and what they were going to suffer, what they were going to go through, had to do with the fact that Smyrna was one of the centers of Caesar worship. Caesar worship. Smyrna was a, a really big on it. They were, they loved Caesar. And they were real big on it in Smyrna. And here's the thing, though, that was common to all of them. Caesar, as you may realize, by this time had been declared or pronounced to be a god. Small g. But to us, small g. To them, big g. He was god. Caesar was a god like all their other gods. And so to show your allegiance to Caesar, their god, you were required to at least Once a year, go to the center for Caesar worship and bow at the altar of Caesar. It was required by everyone that was a citizen and even if you were there visiting. So in other words, if you had a visa and you're in the Roman area, you had to give allegiance to Caesar you had to at least once a year go to this altar of Caesar and pronounce your allegiance to him, bow the knee, bow before him as a god. You were then awarded a certificate showing that you had bowed to Caesar. So you would keep that certificate with you, I suppose, sort of like what we do as identification. But you had to have your Caesar worship ID. Your certificate. Now, how do you suppose that played on Christians? Remember, Christianity is brand new. Paganism had been all the thing for all their lives and now they've come to Christ. They've realized that Christ alone is God. Some of these people hadn't had the background and heritage in Judaism to know that there is one God and we do not bow before any other. Some of these were real just Greeks and pagans and and yet here they're shown that there is one God. One God shown to be in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ the Son has come. He has given His life for you. He has died for you. He has purchased you with His blood. You are a follower of Jesus and there is no bowing to any other God. Now, Rome requires it. Christ says you must not bow the knee to any other God. What do you do? What do you do? And the problem is. That the Caesar worship. Was not only demanded. The Caesar worship was such. That if you did not do it. You were arrested. You were imprisoned. And oftentimes, Most of the time. It meant you were put to death. You were put to death for not worshiping Caesar. Caesar was at the time this was written, most likely Caesar Domitian. And he reigned from about 81 A.D. till the time he was murdered in 96 A.D. He was a murderous, bloodthirsty dictator. And this Caesar began a persecution against Christians. He hated Christians and Christianity. And so, here in Smyrna particularly, there were mass executions of Christians for not bowing the knee to the altar of Caesar. That's That was at Smyrna. In fact, we know also again from history that Smyrna had a famous pastor, a famous elder. It was a little after this, but it was in the same area and for the same reason. His name was Polycarp. And at the age of 86, Polycarp was arrested and imprisoned and threatened to be burned at the stake for not bowing the knee to Caesar. Not bowing the knee to the God of the Roman Empire. And Polycarp responded by saying, You threaten me with a fire that harms for a time and is quickly quenched. You do not know the fire that awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and the everlasting punishment that will be upon you. Wow! And then they burned him at the stake. Only Polycarp refused to be bound. You're not going to, you don't need to bind me at the stake. I willingly give my life for Jesus. And they set him on fire and burned him at the stake, although not bound to the stake. Giving his life rather than bowing his knee to a pagan god. This was the kind of thing that was faced in this day by citizens of Rome, including those in Philadelphia. Yes, Smyrna was particularly bad because they were one of the centers of Caesar worship. But Smyrna was not that far away from Philadelphia. And it would have been the same case there. So the church in Philadelphia, to whom Jesus was addressing, when He says, I know that you have a little power, Mean, meant that how on earth can we as a small church fight against the vast power of the huge Roman government who demands that we bow the knee to Caesar? And we won't do it because we bow the knee to no man, but God alone. That was the case at Philadelphia. How can we go against the vast government? Now, we... Keep that in mind as well. Keep that in mind as well as we are here in the 21st century. But think about this. Imagine what it had to be like for a Christian there required to bow before Caesar or else face death and knowing that bowing to Caesar is wrong and you can't do it. What would you do? Would you risk going around without your certificate of worshipping caesar or would you bow the knee to the pagan god i couldn't do it i have a hard time even when people bow before the queen or any other earthly potentate i don't care who they are i don't i would not bow to the queen i would certainly not bow to any pope but these this is what they face so again this would certainly have affected their power and much of their, their ability to practice their faith in the community among those people. Attacked as being uh, non-Caesar worshippers or outlawed because they were non-Caesar worshippers even from the very government that normally would protect people. So, this was one of the things they faced. Another one was one of the main things that all of these cities also faced was a huge contingency of paganism and pagan worship. This was rampant, and I'll just mention a couple of things from several of these other passages and other churches, again, that we've already gone over. But there was huge pagan worship in this day. Turn back to chapter 2 again. And this time look at chapter 2 and verse 12 as we address the church in Pergamum. He says, unto the angel of the church at Pergamum, right? The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Imagine living there. Where do you live? Satan's dwelling place. And that's their town, practically. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast My name and did not deny My faith, even in the days of Antipas, My witness, My faithful one, who was killed among you, where where Satan dwells. Imagine living there where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is. This speaks to a amazing thing that was present in these cities and caused a great deal of the problems that were here in these cities. And that was a huge amount of pagan gods Pagan temples and pagan worship. All these different pagan temples were there. But in Pergamum, there was one that was different from all the rest. Different from anything in all of these cities. In Pergamum, where Satan dwells, as Jesus said to this church, there was this altar that they're not sure exactly who it was to, but it is believed that it was to Zeus, the small g-god Zeus. And this altar was, and we know how big it was because it's still around, this altar was 109 feet high. That is like 10 stories. There isn't a building that high anywhere around here, probably till you get to clear water. Ten stories high. A hundred and nine feet high. It was one hundred and seventeen feet wide. The stairs leading up to it were sixty five feet wide and went up hundreds of steps. This altar was huge, people would walk under it through it, around it. It was, as I said, supposedly an altar to Zeus. It was extremely impressive, and extremely wicked. Hitler, his men, found this altar and had it excavated and it is now in Berlin. It is there. You can Google it and you can see pictures of it it is a massive altar and that's what jesus was speaking of to this particular church and yet this was common in all the cities little you know we we know that there's all kinds of pagan worship today but it takes on different forms where we are much of the pagan worship today has to do with wealth or money or power or things like that but could you imagine going down the road and having not just churches every couple of blocks or churches on every street corner, but temples to Zeus, to Hermes, to whoever. These pagan gods. Temples and people flocking to pagan temples for pagan worship. This is what faced these churches. Churches were here and churches were there trying to bring forth the truth of God's Word. And all around them were people who were worshiping all kinds of gods. And you remember when Paul went to Athens and he addressed them there. And, you know, they just wanted to lump God, Jesus, the true God, in with all their other gods. You can't do that. Our God is God. And that's what Paul started to tell them. There is one God who is the Creator. He is the true God. The everlasting God. The real God. And all these other things are idols and pagans and horrible things. They, some of these things were utterly wicked in their type of worship. Sacrificing your own children in fire to some of these quote-unquote gods. Horrible things. Our God is the true God. So you imagine... Going through Philadelphia, you're a small church, you don't have your certificate of Caesar worship, and you're going in amongst all these people who worship every other or all kinds of other pagan gods, small g. This is what Philadelphia faced, and this is why Some suggest that when Jesus said to them that they were a little, had a little power, part of it was due to the fact that they were small, part of it was due to the fact that they were under Roman domination, and part of it was due to the fact of the pagan influence in all of these cities. How do you get power in a situation like that? Now I began this message by talking about some of the things that we face some of the opposition that we face. And everything I said is true. We also face opposition from all kinds of influences. Now is our government quite as harsh as the Roman government was? Not yet. Not yet. We still have freedoms in America To take the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. We are not afraid. In fact, the government protects us from people bursting through these doors to come in here and disrupt our services. What are they called? RICO laws, I believe. That we are protected from people interrupting our services. The government does still protect us. We are still free. Thank God. Unless you want to go to Dearborn, Michigan or at least parts of Dearborn, Michigan, and try to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ there, you will not be able to do so. Because they are Muslims. And they have established almost an entirely new country in the middle of Michigan. The sovereign Islamic state of Dearborn. Some of you are looking at me like you didn't know this. Do you know we have one congressman in our government who isn't a Muslim? At least I I believe it's still one, and he's from Dearborn. He's from there because they are all Muslims. And Christians have tried to go there to pass out tracts, to witness to the God who is God, and the police stop the Christians. Where's the freedom? Freedom. Or, unless you decide that you want to go to one of these, and I can't even say it, I'll just say pride parades. And you want to go to witness at a pride parade and pass out gospel tracts Or copies of the gospel. Or try to explain that sodomy is a sin. Or tell them that they are in danger of hellfire. You don't even need to do that. Just try to pass out tracts at one of these pride parades. And the police stop you for proclaiming Christ. Not that you're interfering with any of their procedures or any of their abominations, just on the fringes trying to pass out tracts. People were arrested. And guess where that happened? Philadelphia. Not this Philadelphia, but the one up in Pennsylvania. That's at least one of the places. You see, we are free in America still. But there is mounting opposition to what we believe. They may not arrest you for bowing at the altar of the President, but they are continually infiltrating or giving anti-Christian propaganda through schools. And this Common Core thing that is going on right now is a great impetus to that. You must teach what we tell you. You must teach the government standards. And what will the government standard be? Evolution. What will the government standard be? That, well, we're all the same regardless of our, you know, whether or not Johnny has two daddies or two mommies. We must recognize alternative lifestyles. This is what the government is doing. So we have been taken over by paganism in our government, filtering down into our schools. I thank God for the people of this church who do not allow their children to go to public schools. It is no longer an option. My kids were able to go a little bit because it wasn't nearly as bad as it is today. The government that we are now under, I can say especially the current one, hates what we love. Doesn't that diminish our power? I don't know. We'll talk about that in a minute. What about the whole matter of pagan worship? Well, we do have that. We do have the whole matter of the pagan worship. And for that, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, that passage that we read a little while ago. Here in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul speaks about this whole matter of who we wrestle against. He says in verse 11, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of not the government, but the devil. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, that's not to say that some of the schemes of the devil don't involve the government. But he speaks then of our struggle being not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's speaking of demonic pagan worship, demonic influence, in the government, in the the states, in wherever. All of these things are at the root of the wickedness and the evil that is brought forth from the hearts of men against the things that we love. And this is not simply for the people that Paul was writing to in that era. This is still going on. Today, what is the greatest way that Satan has been able to influence people away from the gospel in our day? It hasn't been by persecution like it has in the past in other countries. It hasn't been by wickedness and uprising and torture. It's been by affluence. How do you get people to not care about the gospel? Make them rich. America's rich, folks. Now that's not always bad, but what did Jesus say? It is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. But rich people are saved and God does bless people with richness. Thank God. I'm not saying that we have to be, you know, renounce everything and live in poverty, but overall, look at our country. Who cares about God? We got money. Who cares about God? The government gives us money. I don't need your God. I've got all I need. Not to mention the other demonic influences that are continually rising in our day. Be it from entertainment, watch what you watch. Be it from computers, social media, whatever it is. There has never in the history of mankind been anything like there is today. Never. Fourteen years ago, I did not have one of these. Twenty years ago, hardly anybody had one of these. Now, everybody's got one of these in their pocket, on their laps, everywhere, we are connected to the Internet. It's never been like that. Nothing has ever been like that in the history of the world. And much of it, much of it is not good. At least in terms of how it can distract people from the things of God and the gospel. So all of these things that we're talking about from Philadelphia, and if you want to go back to Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, all of these things being spoken of that we've mentioned here all come into play as Jesus says to them, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. Now, I mentioned the government. I mentioned the demonic pagan influence. I didn't mention the first one, that they were likely a small church. Obviously, that applies to us. Now, we're not small because of earthquakes. I don't know that I've ever been in an earthquake. (laughs) Certainly, we don't get many earthquakes here. We get sinkholes. And there may be some people leaving because of sinkholes. But so far, the population around here is actually increasing, not decreasing. But we are indeed a small church. And that certainly leads to limited resources. Or you can translate that small power, as Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia. So we understand all of these things that Jesus has addressed to this church in Philadelphia. The pagan worship, the government, the smallness of the church. What can we do? What can we do? How on earth can we possibly do what God has called us on to do? How can we do what Jesus expresses and tells us to do to spread the gospel, to proclaim the truth. How many people do I reach on a Sunday? What can we do? How can we possibly overcome these overwhelming odds? Well, we may have very limited power or small power But God has unlimited power. And this is where we will pick up next week. Because it is God who is for us who cares, who's against us. We worship the God who is God, who has all the sovereign power to move Heaven and earth to enable us, to allow us, to push us, to accomplish what He has called on us to do. I am preaching next week's sermon, but that's okay. Have hope. Do not be discouraged or do not despair. God is God. And God is on the throne. And this is the God we worship. We worship the God Who is God? We worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And don't you know that our God is able to open doors for us. And I believe He will. Now there are some stipulations to it that we'll see. And I pray and I believe that we're doing it. That's why I have great hope for this church. Great hope. And that's that's why we keep going. We believe. God is opening doors for our church. Despite all the opposition, wherever it may come from, however great it may be, God is able. Because God is God. Let's pray.